I'm Matthew Frost, and greetings upon you I bestow as you join us for the 31st episode of Fully Scored. If you're new here, please make yourself at home, and if you're a regular listener, you know where the kettle is and help yourself to a biscuit too. Righty, now we're all here, let me tell you what's going to be happening. First of all, and I'm sure you'd like to join me in welcoming Stephen Buller to Fully Scored. Stephen is going to be chatting about his early life, education, faith and of course his music. Following Stephen, we're delighted to welcome back Dr Howard Evans who's going to be presenting the second part of his analysis on Eric Ball's Air Verie, The Old Wells. If you haven't listened to part one of the analysis, this is available in our previous episode if you want to brush up on it before we begin. To conclude, we welcome Dale Caffell to speak about his Arid Island album choice, and then put Stephen Buller back in the hot seat to play Band Mastermind. Without further ado, please give a round of applause and welcome our first guest, Mr Stephen Buller. Well, Steve, you're now one of the most sought-after composers and arrangers worldwide and have a fascinating and diverse career as a musician working with many high-profile musicians and public figures. Before we speak about that, I'd like to know a little bit about where it all started with you. So can you tell me about your initial musical beginnings, please? Uh, of course. Well, um, if there's a, a typical uh, Salvation Army officer's uh, family, um, I'm not sure there is, but I, I felt like I was in a, a good one. Uh, it was a, a good warm home. My parents were uh, Salvation Army officers attached to uh, territorial headquarters in New York. So that's the Eastern Territory uh, in the States here. Um, uh, yeah, my father was in finance and uh, played in the New York staff band for most of uh, most of that career. They had a couple of core appointments, but uh, they were commissioned early in the 60s. And so, so uh, that was kind of my life growing up. Mom um, didn't have an appointment at headquarters, but she was involved at the uh, at our core uh, in women's ministries, home league um, and, and raising four children at home. Uh, so she kept busy with that. But um as you're asking about upbringing, that implies all of the, the usual things for, I think, uh, for kids that are growing up in, in, in the Army. Uh, chances are they're going to put an instrument into your hand or, or music lessons in some way. Um, uh, a, a divisional music camps, the territorial music camp for me uh, through right up through my teens was uh, Star Lake. Fantastic. And was it a trombone that was first put in your hands or did you start playing piano beforehand or even another brass instrument? Uh, first came piano. Good question. Um, I, I think that was my mother's influence. She, she played some piano. Dad was more of a brass guy, but, um, piano lessons started probably uh, age six classical piano lessons. And, uh, dad was my first music teacher. Uh, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, but at, at the age of seven, when he put a trombone in my hand, I, I could not reach all the way out to uh, seventh position. It was just a little too far for a young guy. So he switched me uh, over to um, uh, baritone at that time uh, and euphonium. And I played that really through a grade school all the way up until very late in high school when I, I'd been watching the trombone section for a while. And, and I really wanted to play that instrument. I'd like their parts better. 
uh, in that at that age. And so I, I made the switch to a trombone. And uh, when I got into college, uh, uh, that was I minored on trombone um, and majored in composition. We could talk about college in a minute, but I'm trying to answer your question. My brother, I think, started on cornet, ended up on tuba. So it was just it was just that kind of thing. But those were the first instruments. Certainly piano, Matt, led the way uh, as far as uh, regular practice and lessons uh, outside of the home. And is that when your interest in composition started as well around that time? That time, as far as writing, I had the facility. I remember going to Star Lake one, one summer, hearing the, the Holy War uh, for the first time, and uh, came home after that, and uh, it, it really had um, made an impact on me musically. And how I hadn't heard that kind of music coming from the core band, certainly, but at a, at a camp, at the camp, uh, and I met RSA at some point along the way. I don't think he brought it that year. But the point is, I heard it and my, was, my father was able to bring home the score. So I'm leading up to, I tried to put the score on the piano and play this music that was, you know, just, just had knocked me over. And uh, that's when I discovered that all the, you know, there's B-flat instruments and E-flat instruments and, and, and bass cleft, you know, and I, I couldn't figure that out yet. I didn't know how to uh, transpose. Perhaps that was the very beginning of it. And, and later I would take little pieces of the Holy War, maybe the slow section in the middle and, and write it out and try and get a few people to play it uh, at the core. I did the same with uh, the Fantasia, the, the Stem and Allen Fantasia for piano. I wrote a little bit of it out just to see what it was like and then get some people to come into the homely room where there was a piano and I would try to play it. But I think as far as serious arranging or intentionally arranging uh, something, it would have been for, we probably had a praise and worship type of group at the core. So I would write out some little horn parts for that or vocal parts. So you said that the Holy War and those other pieces you mentioned were real influences. Mm. Were there any other influences in your life at that moment or perhaps people that influenced you to make that next step in your musicianship? I, I call those years very sheltered, uh, especially musically. Um, and so it was really only army music that I knew. As I met people um, at, at, during summer camps, Star Lake in particular, meeting uh, Eric Ball on, on more than one occasion, uh, Les Condon, more than one occasion, and, and getting to know these gentlemen as I was growing up into my mid-teens, um, left a big impact. Certainly Ray Stedman Allen. I have some, some great pictures of, of, uh, of us there at Star Lake and Ivor Basanko, uh, interesting character. And we've been friends for years since then. Um, uh, and some great, great leaders. Uh, James Williams, of course, just really impressed me with his leadership and ethic in a, re in a rehearsal. A big impact was Bruce Broughton when I finally met him. It was the right time in my life for that kind of a person to come along. A uh, successful film composer, um, just uh, someone that I could talk to and took an interest in me. Fantastic. And as you said, going from that sheltered life, in your own words, how did mm -hmm. you make the decision that you wanted to have a career in music and go forward into the big, wide musical world? I didn't know, you know, like most kids around uh, 18, 19, what exactly you're going to do. But uh, I mean, there was an inevitability about it. The, the biggest question for me was I had discovered writing um, at, at, even at that age and really enjoyed it. So the biggest question was which of three paths was I going to focus on piano? Was I going to continue my studies and go into trombone performance? Or was I going to become uh, a writer and follow that road? So um, 
uh, I guess just, just to sort of complete the story here, uh, I auditioned at the Eastman School of Music on piano, was accepted. Uh, I auditioned at Berkeley College uh, uh, on trombone. And there um, I had already been interested in jazz a little bit, but commercial music and how to make a living at music, uh, at the business of music, seemed to be an emphasis that I discovered would be available to me at Berkeley. This was not so much the case at Eastman. I turned that down. I accepted uh, the Berkeley um, uh, invitation. And uh, as it turns out, I majored in, um, uh, it was a dual major in, in um, composition and also trombone performance at Berkeley. There was a good core there too. I played in the, the Cambridge Silver Band and uh, had a lot of a good support of uh, fellow Salvationists my age um, while I was in Boston. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Now, I believe that your first original composition that was published by the Salvation Army was the vocal piece, When We Cannot See Our Way, a really beautiful song setting, published in 1975 with words by Thomas Kelly. Was that one of the first times you had written? It was the first time that I wrote a piece that I intentionally thought, I wonder if I could get something published. It was, it was almost on a whim. I was familiar with the musical Salvationist, certainly as the core songster pianist. In fact, that was just before I went to Berkeley. So I remember I was still in, um, in New York, I think, at that point when I had some time on my hands. I went through the songbook. It was almost like they say when you open a, a phone book and put your finger on uh, randomly on, on a song. I kind of did that with, I, I don't mean to make nothing of it, but I, I think the bigger picture here is there was there was something in finding those words uh, which didn't immediately come to mind with a tune to me. And I liked the words of Thomas Kelly. And uh, so I thought, I guess I could try to just do a, you know, a three verse setting. I had not done that before. Uh, your question was it the first time, possibly that I actually, you know, kind of wrote something down and worked on it and worked on the harmony and, and the voice leading. I've been involved around choirs, certainly at camp and at the core, like I said, the Songster Brigade. So I had some idea about that, but it was very self-taught, Matt. At that point, I'm, I'm just kind of feeling my way through, but had a good set of words. Uh, as it turns out, what I wrote musically was very different from what was usually sung the tune with those words. That is just, that's just the way it happened. Uh, my own ignorance, perhaps, about the song. But um, yeah, it's true. I sent it in, and I remember getting a letter from uh, RSA saying we've accepted this, and... Um, uh, Thank you for your contribution. That was a great encouragement. So um, that, that was the first time, yes, published in the Salvation Army. And that was in London and indeed was not uh, something we have a lot of music published here in the States, but that was a big deal for me at the time. Fantastic. Great stuff. And a year later in 1976, what I believe to be was your first band piece was published by the Salvation Army in the American band journal, the hymn tune arrangement of My Father's World. Do you find writing instrumentally different for writing for vocals? Do you approach them in a different or very similar way? Both, I, I guess. First of all, you, you have to address things like uh, harmony, of course, melodic line, those kind of things. But uh, with brass, uh, it's different, of course, or instrumentally writing. It's uh, now you're looking at uh, writing for the instruments, thinking about the tessitura, which is to say the, the, the euphonium sounds like this up here or this down here, or what, what range is comfortable to play softly, those kind of decisions. And um, 
so harmony, yes, but then again, you have to think about line and, and uh, counterpoint, those kind of things. So that's a yes and no kind of answer to you on, on that front. But harmony certainly comes is big for me, and I like to think about that a lot. So when you're writing in those sort of different pop jazz idioms, do you like to immerse yourself and listen to that sort of style of music? Or perhaps is that the music that you like listening to anyway? Uh, I have a 14-year-old and a 19-year-old at home. I listen to pop music, and that, that keeps uh, uh, me in touch with that, maybe. Uh, I mean, yeah, I like Adele a lot. It just popped into my head. But um, I listen to all kinds of, of music. Um, and that's really, I think, the most important part of uh, your question there. I, I listen to all styles, Matt. And uh, if you saw my CD collection, uh, it's pretty eclectic. But there's a lot of jazz. There's a lot of film scores. And there's a lot of orchestral music there. So when, I, when I'm going to go in a direction, do I listen to maybe I might listen to some film scores and, and it kind of kickstarts me sometimes. And I'll think, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. But definitely an influence. And then I try to bring it into my own voice um, as I write for whatever the commission is or whatever the assignment is. But yeah, I, I love the influences and uh, I try to be, um, I try to speak as many languages as I can. Excellent. A few days ago on our podcast Facebook page, we asked uh, for listeners to submit questions that they had for you. And I think now would be a good time to bring a couple of those questions up. The first question comes from Manasha Chikwesvero, a Salvationist from Zimbabwe. And he asks, for a piece like Praise Him, first of all, how long would it take you to write this? And what is the writing process like for you? Okay, that was an assignment. Um, we had a Congress in Atlanta, in the Southern Territory here. And the, the theme for the Congress uh, was uh, Praise Him. Um, and so those of us that were involved with the music program there, I think I was playing uh, principal trombone with the territorial band. Well, those of us that were writers in this band were tasked with writing uh, some setting of the song Praise Him. Uh, mine was to write like uh, a fanfare prelude. I think um, Bill Broughton, he probably did a, a swing version of it or, or maybe some, some other version. So, so that's kind of the genesis of it. Here's the tune. We need to have this for, to, to be able to play uh, come June when, when the band comes together for the Congress in Atlanta. So we all wrote our, our contribution. Uh, to the next part of the question, how long... I get that sometimes. How long did it take to write it? Uh, some things go quickly. I already knew the tune uh, for this, and I, I thought it would I could make an opener out of it pretty easily. Um, and with some facility at the piano, I, I work things out. I always start with a sketch, Matt, and uh, that, that's part of the, the answer to the question. The sketch goes a little quicker because you're not worried about scoring everything out and trans transposition, laying out a score. It's just maybe two or three staves for, for a piece like this. So I can move pretty quickly. Uh, I remember that one That one came a little faster than usual because um, I was able to consolidate lines. Uh, if you look through it, there's a lot of um, scale uh, scales running through it, but they're all octaves, you know? So you could have all the horns and euphonium and tubas doing that. And then the, uh, the bright instruments, as Eric Leitzen used to call the brights and the mellows, the bright instruments, the cornets and trombones would, um, 
you know, do the, do the fanfare or you can hear it all. It's all in the beginning. So I kept that going up and um, I don't know, maybe probably had a good sketch within a week. And then of course the production uh, has to be part of the writing process where you're actually scoring it out. I think I had finale software by that time. So it was putting into the computer, getting a score that I liked, proofing it, uh, listening to it, looking it over. Um, and then when I was finally happy, several proofs later, um, uh, extracting the parts. So all told, and this is kind of fast, uh, two weeks maybe, two, two or three weeks, and I could was able to send that to Atlanta and then get it played. Fascinating, the story behind it. So the next question from one of our listeners comes from John Brooks, and he asks, does writing music for the glory of God bring any differing challenges versus writing secular music? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It is a very different approach, uh, but it's not something that I have to uh, force myself to do. It's, a, it's, uh, it's very natural when I approach something that's written, uh, let's say, hymn tune based or for a Salvation Army band or a church orchestra, something like that. I know the content of the words. I, I kind of know the feeling that is needed. I know the audience that might be listening to it. And I know I'm trying to communicate spiritual thoughts, spiritual feelings. So in, in those cases, it, it's something that comes from the heart. I can't really quantify it more than that, other than to say, if I was uh, writing a piece for the uh, Marine Band, I might uh, say, okay, I know I have the form of singers coming in, perhaps I know her key. I know they need a four bar intro. I need to lead her in. I've got two verses. I'm going to change key and then out, uh, make it three and a half minutes, four minutes. That's an assignment. There's not a whole lot of heart in that. It's more workmanship and craftsmanship that goes into it. And, uh, and I could do that too when, when I need to. So that, that kind of se separates the two of them for you. I hope that answers his question. Perfectly. Thank you. So Steve, for over 30 years, you had a successful career as the staff arranger for the president's own United States Marine Band and Chamber Orchestra in Washington, D.C. How did you come to have that role in the first place? Yeah, that's one of those uh, life moments, I guess. A friend of mine uh, from my years playing in the New York Staff Band, friend in the trombone section, his name was um, Howard Hastings. Howard ended up in the uh, the President's Own Marine Band as a, a copyist, music copyist. And he happened to be there at that time uh, when an opening for a staff arranger uh, came up. And this was the first time the Marine Band had looked for uh, hiring uh, a staff arranger because they usually got their arrangements from within the band. So Howard reached out to me and he said, this is perfect for you. This is that you should do this kind of job. You should take the audition. I didn't agree at first. I said, this is all foreign to me. I've not written for the wind band. Uh, I've only written for brass band, but I have this one recording of New York staff band playing uh, my American overtures, a sort of a patriotic piece. I guess uh, Howard took that recording and the score and put it in front of the right people. And they invited me to audition for the Marine band. You asked how, how it happened. So the process was they opened up an audition, I guess, nationally, and they had probably 25, 30 arrangers at that time that uh, sent in scores. And that's what we had to do, send in materials. And then they got it down to a final five or three or so and said, we need you to write something for this instrumentation, uh, uh, some kind of patriotic piece. I did that couple of pages. I was super slow. 
but um, I, I figured it out after a while and cut to the, the chase here. Um, I got a phone call one day and they, they said, we've decided to hire you and we need you to come to Washington. We need you to enlist in the Marines and then come to, to Washington. Oh, and by the way, you'll need to get your hair cut. And, um, and then uh, all that happened. It was all good. And that was uh, 1980. Yep. The rest is history. <laughs> I stayed for 30 years anyway, Matt. So uh, history is still being written, but uh, it was a, a wonderful career working with world-class musicians and uh, a great uh, period of my life that I, I look back on fondly. So what would the day-to-day -day sort of responsibilities be for in that role and what sort of occasions would you be required to write for? Yeah, it, it changed all the time, um, only the, because of the nature of the job. I would have to learn to be flexible, first of all. We've already talked about listening to all the styles of music. That came to be um, a strength for me because one week I could be writing for a, a chamber orchestra where they were playing dinner music uh, for a visiting dignitary at the White House. Uh, another week they would have uh, the jazz band playing for um, dancing, and I would have to write some tunes that, that, uh, that the administration wanted to have on that uh, occasion. Other times, let's say... Um, uh, private dinner thing where up in the private quarters of the White House, where uh, it was just the president and his wife and special guests, perhaps they would just need soft music. So I had to learn how to write for harp and flute. Um, and I wrote a whole book of that stuff. I guess there was a lot of that. Uh, another occasion would be uh, Christmas time where they would want a brass quintet playing up on the balcony as tourists were coming through, uh, touring the White House and seeing all the decorations. There was a lot of that kind of music. Um, on, on tour, the band would go out and do national tours. We had a vocalist and I would have to write arrangements of songs for she or he uh, to sing on tour. So it was a wide range. We would bring singers in from New York for the lighting of the national Christmas tree. I remember one time um, we had all the information, let's say, like I mentioned before, the key, the, the song. And then she got off at the train station in uh, Washington, D.C. And as she's coming to the barracks for the rehearsal, I get the word that that wasn't the key she wanted. She wanted it in another key. So uh, talk about last minute. I had to learn to write very quickly. And uh, uh, to answer your question, that was sort of the day-to-day -day work. I learned that on the job and uh, had to learn how to be creative very, very quickly sometimes. So you held that role over the period of five differing presidents. How closely did you work with the presidents? Did you get to meet them? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And the answer is no, because I, I certainly wasn't writing the, uh, the music uh, at the White House. And I uh, occasionally would come in for rehearsals of the music. But never on the day would I be there. We have three uh, directors of the band. They were the person, of course, with the musicians that were all um, in uniform when the president would appear. But um, no, never had the chance to uh, cross paths, not in uh, any kind of uh, music writing um, occasion with uh, the presidents. I did almost, one time I had to play trombone. They were short of trombone player. They had what was called a state arrival and uh, President Clinton was uh, walking by um, and um, the trombones were in position with the band and um, it was some march we were playing and we were coming up to the trio where the trombones had the melody and, you know, with a march pass, they're coming pretty closely to where the band is standing. And I remember the slide was going out dangerously into the path, but uh, fortunately, uh, one of my more seasoned uh, player uh, colleagues 
uh, gave me the elbow and said, uh, you need to stop now until he walks by and just as the band's playing. So torn down. And uh, so that's perhaps the closest I got to Bill Clinton, who loved to play saxophone, by the way. But that's another story. Fantastic. And someone that you did get to meet and work with was the legendary John Williams. And it was your job to transcribe some of his music from Star Wars, Catch Me If You Can, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to be performed with the Marines Band, uh, with John Williams himself conducting. What was that experience like? He came on two different occasions. They were anniversaries where he was conducting the band, uh, and all the scores were sent uh, ahead of time. The orchestra scores, the actual film scores, which was a thrill to me because I'm a, a film score fan. Um, and so first of all, uh, what was it like? I learned a lot from studying these scores and having to transcribe all the violin parts uh, into uh, the, the wind band uh, setting instrumentation. But um, so I say it's a, a career highlight, uh, but really the best part of that was, was meeting and working with the man himself. So there were several rehearsals over a week's time on both occasions. So we got to know each other a little bit in, in that setting, uh, first name basis during the process. And uh, by the end of it, I was saying, John, why did you why did you do it this way? Or why he, we were talking about mutes one time and uh, he was uh, pointing out one one uh, one instrument had uh, a cut mute and then a, and a harmon mute and then a plunger mute and a straight mute in the trumpet section. And he would say, well, Duke Ellington used to do that a lot. And it gives you all these different colors. We'd talk about that. We'd talk about scoring. We would talk about um, solving instrumentation uh, issues. Um, he was just very, very self-effacing. He wouldn't let me talk about him. He would always turn it back to Steve and, and say, and, and how is it working out with you, Steve, here with the Marine Band? You've been here a while. And that what a great job, uh, he would say, uh, because he worked with uh, a band. I think he was working with an Air Force band uh, early, early in his career. So he kind of related on some of that, but he was that kind of guy. Um, took a lot of time with the band, talking to the musicians, went out of his way to stop and thank them. And um, yeah, just just a super, super human being. Very easy to talk to. Fantastic. Thank you for that anecdote there. Sounds fantastic. And as well as we mentioned and touched upon a few times already, uh, not only are you a writer, but also a trombonist. Um, perhaps most notably, you were part of the spiritual to the bone trombone ensemble. Were you part of the formation of that group? Oh yeah, it was my idea. The, the name of the group was my idea and, and pulling uh, my, my friends uh, from around the Southern Territory in the USA here. Uh, we, were, we were crossing paths a lot. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, again, I'll mention Bill Broughton, um, uh, my friend Herb Bruce, who used to play at Disneyland, uh, Disney World, sorry. Uh, Eric Alexander, a professional trombone player in Atlanta, uh, certainly uh, Willis Howell, now Commissioner Willis Howell, who's about to retire uh, in August, uh, and I, we were close friends. He went into training from my corps here in Maryland, and uh, we've stayed uh, close um, through all these years. So uh, Willis was an amazing bass trombone player, and, and, and Herb Bruce, an, an amazing jazz player. We would be crisscrossing uh, at, at at camps as clinicians or whatever. Uh, and it's some, we'd always, someone would bring music and we would just start playing quartets and quintets. And it just seemed, you know, a year or two later, I remember thinking, I wonder if we can find a budget, find somebody to sponsor a recording project for all these amazing players. 
Uh, and uh, just to cut to the end of it, it's uh, the music department in Atlanta, Dr. Richard Holtz said, Steve, put the idea together, uh, write some arrangements. Uh, maybe uh, Bill Broughton could write some arrangements. He did. Eric Alexander, he did. And um, and then we we made the first recording. We thought, well, that finally we did this one project. But it became so popular uh, that uh, the idea kept going. And we said, OK, let's do a sequel. Number two, number three and number four, Bones and Voices. I think there was a Christmas recording in there as well. So, uh, yeah, that was that was more fun than work. I have to say, you know, we wrote the arrangements very quickly. Uh, Bill and I did at the beginning. Uh, but recording them, there was a lot of giggling and laughing. And just and then we went into the studio and and recorded them. And uh, it was a great idea uh, in its time. It was it just seemed to be very popular. A lot of it is streaming now. I'm working with uh, someone that is helping me get them up so that you can stream it on uh, online. So that takes us on to the final part of our interview, the quirky quickfire questions. And I've got a few questions here. I'm sure you've been interviewed many times, but I hope at least some of these you'll have never been asked before and probably won't be again. <laughs> okay. So the first question may be a fairly standard one. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Wilfred Heaton. What about a specific favorite Salvation Army band piece? I'll go, okay, I'll, just, I'll say Holy War, just because it made such an impact at, for a 16-year-old when I first heard it. Fair enough. It's a tricky question, Matt. If you could travel in time to a significant moment in history, when would that be? Oh, this might be a little bit from left field, but the 50s, when jazz was really coming into its own, the kind of jazz I like to listen to, just past bebop, um, but more of, um, you know, the, the, the melding, they called it third stream. This is, might be even early 60s. Right in that period, that I would have loved to have been around uh, to hear that stuff live that was happening. That's a jazz answer, sorry. No, don't apologize at all, it's great. Have you got a favorite passage of scripture? Uh, yeah. I, again, too, too broad. Um, I love, um, I love Colossians. Yeah. I'm, I'm not even going to pin it down right now. Here's a bit of a thought experiment. You've just opened your own restaurant and a local journalist is coming to review the menu. What starter main and dessert would be on the menu? Starter grilled octopus. Maine sea bass with a salt crust. And what, where were we going? Dessert? You skipped the uh, cheese course in the middle there. Sorry. And, yeah, and, and then um, lemon meringue pie. Excellent. Sounds a bit fishy to me, apart from the <laughs> lemon meringue pie, hopefully. <laughs> so I'm looking for two answers with this next question. What's your favorite sport to watch and to play, or are they both the same? Favorite sport to watch, American baseball. I don't really play a lot of sports except when I'm playing catch maybe with my kids, but uh, bike riding occasionally as well. I'm not sure that's a sport. If you could sit down with any US president, living or deceased, for a one-hour conversation, who would you choose? Ronald Reagan. Excellent. What's your least favorite mode of transport? A car in traffic. And what for you is the ideal weather condition? Yeah, warm, sunny, and uh, Fahrenheit, I would say mid-70s is a sweet spot. Very precise indeed. And finally, 
In your opinion, what is the most iconic games console of all times? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to say the, uh, the, the new VR Oculus, because my son is writing games for it with his company out in Seattle. His game is called... Uh, oh, oh, he'll kill me. <laughs> uh, Moss. It's a VR game called Moss. But uh, the Oculus is probably the platform is you just asked about. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. And thank you indeed for giving up your time to join us today and to speak to us. It's really been a pleasure to speak to you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation once again, Matt. Thanks, Steve. Now it's time for our analysis. And who better to say a few words about the piece to jog our memories than the composer himself? Here are some brief words from Eric Ball introducing his piece, The Old Wells. Another air varie, as we used to call them, The Old Wells, based on a song, the words of which are by the late General Osborne, and the tune was by a Brigadier Delzio, who later went to Canada. It's a very good tune, well formed and was quite suitable for making variations. There's a ground based theme at sea built up. There's a steady allegro in humorous mood in which the euphonium is uh, featured. There's an adagio which is quite difficult to play. And then, of course, the finale. Two friends of mine who in their early days had been salvationists, but had uh, not strayed away, but had gone to other churches, went to a Salvation Army festival, heard the band play the Old Wells with the uh, feeling of the words, go back to the Old Wells where the waters are sweet. They were quite moved by it and decided to become Salvationists again. Now it's over to Howard Evans, who's going to be continuing his analysis from letter G. For those who are interested to know, the interspersed excerpts of music are taken from the ISB Heritage Series recording. So that takes us into letter G and our fourth variation. Again, a very different style here. Could you talk us through some of the differences and new nuances we see in this section? This is this is a really interesting section, in that you get um, you get short phrases that are really contrasted. Um, there really is quite a sense of drama about this, in terms of the way that it works. The thematic bits are absolutely clear, but when you hear the work, the thematic bits are are kind of integrated into the texture that the chord structures that he puts around the thematic bits become more kind of preeminent in terms of what you're actually hearing and almost disguises the thematic bit um, that actually comes comes through in this it's it's really interesting and it's one it's some of the more <clears throat> difficult bits in that the two bars that answer the answering two bars uh, you get an entry by the solar horn that is always well known for being very exposed 
uh, even for modern day players. And then there are some solo figures, some solo semi-flavor figures with the solo cornet and soprano that are interlinked that are almost cadenza-like in terms of the way they fit. You get this dramatic loud figure with the thematic uh, figure and then you get this two-bar answering cadenza-like fragment. There's a, a very interesting little bit connected with uh, with this. Um, I did do kind of one or two checks uh, about this. And uh, Brindley Boone talks about this in, uh, in his own book, in his own reminiscences. Um, it's, uh, it's the best of both worlds. Um, I mean, Brindley has to be kind of one of the one of the sources for lots of things partly because of his ISB history book the play the music playbook and his own uh, biography um, he was actually in between jobs and was uh, desperately trying to get an, another job he'd lost his his first job and um, he'd heard rather quietly on on the side that there was a vacancy in the accounts department of SPNS and was interested but he was had been told that the the requirement of the job was that you could play the soprano cornet this was 1934 in the days of the SBNS band and they were obviously looking for somebody uh, in the accounts department but they were also looking for somebody who could play the soprano cornet so um, Brindley Boone went uh, to Judd Street and was auditioned by Captain Eric Ball and uh, Eric obviously knew who Brindley was and his biography says there was a puzzled expression on his face as he smiled and greeted me and said, I didn't know you played soprano. I replied, I don't, but I want a job. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as part of this, he, he started off and Eric Ball asked him to play Rockingham, which he did commencing um, uh, uh, on C and and he uh, Eric Ball asked him to put it up a fourth which took him up to the top F and Brindley Boone says I shall never forget the pained look on the face of the examiner as I struggled to reach that lofty hitherto unexplored pinnacle sight reading from the captain's air varier the old wells followed so it, Brindley Boone actually sight read, had to sight read some of the parts of this for an audition that he didn't succeed at to join the SBNS band. I think there is on the Regal Zonophone site, there's a recording of the SBNS band and um, uh, he describes it as what an ordeal. 
and uh, he didn't expect to hear anything more and wasn't disappointed and some weeks later heard the successful applicant playing at uh, an associated headquarters festival with the SBNS band. So fascinating to see that Eric Ball actually used some of the difficulties of the piece um, that I'm possibly talking about here as an audition piece for Brindley Boone auditioning for soprano on the in the SBNS band. Apparently the work was first played in 1929. It was published in 1930, but it was first played in 1929 and you can find that you can find out about that and and it's there are so many things that you find out uh, about this in in Brindley Boone's uh, history story of the international staff band one of the first volumes and it was in 1929 um, he talks about the manuscript works uh, by Eric Ball being heard that night uh, the two new works by Eric Ball at, at the Rink Festival uh, that year were the Meditation St Anne and the Air Varier, the Old Wells. The fascinating thing here is that the reporter, um, I presume that the reporter, and this was reported in the uh, Bandsman and Sancter as it might have been in those days, the reporter described it as a brilliant Stravinsky-like number. That's the quotation that Brindley Boone's got in his History of the ISB. Now, nowhere reading through this piece would I think of this piece as being a Stravinsky-like number, unless that bombastic stuff that some people think of is, is what they're thinking of. Uh, uh, maybe they're thinking of some of the bombastic moments of the Rite of Spring. Who knows? But I would never have described it as being a Stravinsky-like number in that kind of way. Because I think the thing that we all associate with Eric um, and, and his music is actually the sort of Elgarian context of his music and that sort of quintessentially sort of English Elgar-like style. I mean, there was that affinity with Elgar whereby um, he transcribed the whole of the Enigma variations, the Frossart Overture. Um, he, I think he also did the prelude to the Dream of Gerontius, as well as one or two other works. There's the Checkmate Dances that he took uh, from Arthur, Arthur Bliss's music uh, that he scored uh, and uh, published uh, for band as well. So I think most of us associate um, Eric with Elgar in that kind of way. In fact, there is even a story, uh, and this is in, in um, Eric's own uh, biography um, and my guess is that this piece just backtracking to the ISB premiering this work the SBNS band was formed in 1928 I can't imagine that, that I can't find any record of it but I there is that recording on Regal Zonophone of, of the SBNS band playing this piece but I can't imagine if the SBNS band was formed in 1928 I can't imagine that Eric wouldn't have tried the piece through with the NSBS band, although the manuscript was first played, which I guess was the tradition in those days. The manuscript was first played uh, by the ISB at the Rink Festival in 1929, and then the work was published in 1930. But the connection with, with Elgar, apparently... The SBNS band, I'm not quite sure when this was, there's there's no date given uh, reference for this, but uh, the SBNS band uh, played um, the Old Wells uh, at a concert and the organist of Canterbury Cathedral 
asked Eric for a copy of the score. Elgar was a personal friend of the organist of, uh, of Canterbury Cathedral and apparently Elgar wrote to, uh, to Eric saying that it was free and sane and open airish all three good objectives and that it was a splendid piece of brass band scoring so those kind of that that description of the piece from the uh, uh, report of the festival as it being Stravinsky like actually has no bearing on the structure and the kind of music and that connection with Elgar actually kind of almost attested to by Elgar himself who who gave uh, er Eric Ball's uh, Old Wells uh, the thumbs up very much so so a little bit of a digression there but a fascinating background moving from Brindley and the soprano part at letter G uh, through to Elgar's own appreciation of the music and the score of the Old Wells. And testimony to the quality of the music we're here today nearly a hundred years on still speaking about it. Absolutely. So variation five letter H is our next section can you talk us through this? Letter H, we actually come to the final variation, and um, Eric himself says in his notes, a well-marked rhythmic swing um, and confidence in attacking the various rhythmic features. So it's this, again, the theme, the thematic development, and again, it is the thematic development from the first four bars. In the ground bass, we had the thematic development from the end of the tune, but uh, very much throughout the whole of the piece and that's where you might say it's a little bit underdeveloped because the thematic variation again comes right from those opening four bars and uh, in in more modern works you 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 might find uh, a greater sort of thematic development and and other sections of tunes uh, being used in different ways but again it's those first four bars that provide the first four bars of this figure around uh, that opening of the tune um, four bar phrase from the tubers full band answering phrase dance like phrases and you get um it it it's it, it it's modulatory passages that are quite clearly uh, kind of taken us somewhere in terms of where we go he then compresses those and shorten those takes the beginning of that motive that he starts this movement off with lots of imitative things It's a really useful lesson, I think, for, for, for us as composers in terms of how some of these things are, things are done. The way ideas are used sparingly and the way ideas are, are, are kind of brought and each little idea is mined for itself rather than introducing lots of new and different ideas. So halfway through that section, um, <coughs> the, the figure becomes compressed and shortened and it gets shortened even more with the kind of scalic little bits that you get in the eight bars before I with the trombone feature and the cornet feature everything kind of gets shortened it gives a kind of rhythmic intensity and direction um, in terms of where the music actually moves 
uh, letter I, you get the descending figure again um, that's kind of turned into, into a chromatic descending figure, but it's definitely the descending figure that we had from the tune, where it starts and where it comes down to. And again, you get fragments of that, answering fragments of that, so you get descending chromatic figure, um, and then you get that answered by the ascending chromatic figures, two bar answering phrases, uh, and again that whole section uh, repeats itself and takes us into letter J. His score notes at letter J he says a solo part for the E-flat bass is a feature of the section, should be rendered with some amount of, of abandon, is on about the horn and trombone parts and the balance, and talks about B-flat bass players rendering their staccato notes, quasi pits in the style of the pluck string on the cello or double bass. Now that, just that, those notes in the score, that's, that's what tells me that this is kind of classical in conception, in terms of refinement, in terms of the way we need to play it. The score notes make it sound orchestral in conception and has to be treated in that kind of way. Again, the unusual thing I think here is actually having a solo for the E-flat bass. I think for lots of us um, <clears throat> of later generations, I think if you think all oh, E-flat bass solos, we all automatically think of Les Condon's uh, Call of the Righteous and the E-flat bass solo that features uh, in that. And yet, here we are in 1929 with a cantabile E-flat bass solo uh, that, uh, that, that develops through these first 24 bars of letter J. Really, really long developed solo that kind of moves up by a semitone each time, moves up half a tone each time with the, uh, and again, even the divisi of the bass with those um, uh, pizzicato notes in the B-flat bass that are meant to be very light and very delicate and quasi-pits. And it takes us into uh, another four-bar phrase that then brings us to a dramatic writ before we come to a final presentation of the theme. The, the E-flat bass solo quite clearly again taken from the beginning of this movement but it in a more lyrical style in terms of the way that it actually works. You've got the dance-like style at letter H um, that becomes a much more lyrical style through here. As you've just alluded to, letter K, we come to the reprise of the original chorus, followed by a swift coda at letter L. Yep. Um, really nice to have the representation of the tune here at the end. Nothing different from uh, the beginning in terms of the way it works, but then the final conclusion. Um, you do have this, this Malta Allegro uh, for the coda um, and the kind of sort of one in a bar feel um, really kind of makes it makes that final chord 
that you get uh, letter L as it's really a kind of well Eric says in his core notes think of the first five bars of being the final chord of the main theme and then you get this accompaniment you get this final fragment uh, of this dance like theme in the bottom part of the band that gives us the final chords and then into a final pause and a final conclusion a spirit of exuberant happiness um, is what he says so you get that you get that final motive a final um, a sense of joy which i guess replicates uh, go back to the old wells where the waters are sweet the sense of joy that comes from the song having taken us through all sorts of moods uh, along the way dance like moves dramatic moves quiet moods reflective moods the drama of the uh, recitative the cadenza like section uh, in the middle and the dark chords that you get in the middle there's quite a range of styles and colors that come through this in that kind of way excellent conclusion to an excellent piece and an excellent analysis thank you ever so much howard for talking us through that piece it's been a pleasure to have you on fully scored once again thank you very much again it's just been fascinating to check through um i'm, I'm just so glad i've had some of those reference uh, bits uh, on my shelves because some of the things that you're kind of looking at and that you're trying to find out uh, they're not on uh, they're not sort of sat online waiting for you just to discover and you have to kind of sort of be patient in terms of trying to find out some of the background to some of these things and have to work a little bit harder to what's going on. Um, there are all sorts of, um, if you do a quick search on um, uh, on uh, Regal Zonophone, which is always a fascinating site for finding out uh, what is there uh, for uh, uh, for recordings there is a recording on there of the SPNS band uh, actually playing this work so the SPNS band for its 12 years was conducted by Eric Ball the death knell of the SPNS band uh, was obviously the start of the Second World War and uh, the band uh, folded because uh, uh, most uh, a lot of the players uh, ended up being called up uh, to go to war and uh, obviously that was that was the end of the SBNS band when uh, things came back after the war um, things were very different again it was a different world it's a bit like I suppose where we are now in that uh, post well we're not really post Covid but after these last couple of years since we last met uh, we're in a very different place uh, but it would be very interesting to uh, listen to and to compare. I haven't had time to go through and compare all of those uh, recordings, uh, but obviously uh, it would be fascinating to listen to Eric conducting his own composition um, as, and, and how that actually works and uh, how he uh, how he actually puts that together and the style. Uh, there's obviously a very interesting feature with that. Uh, I think we... I'm not sure whether we spoke about it earlier before we started this, but this whole performance practice issue and obviously the instruments were very different in those days, much smaller mouthpieces, smaller bores, quite a different sound to what we expect from brass bands these days. 
and it's always difficult uh, with those recordings to know how much of the sound or, or difficult to know how much of the sound is the instruments and how much of the sound is the quality of the recording and uh, maybe we ought to resurrect an SBNS band with uh, uh, with uh, a set of old instruments to see what uh, some of these pieces might have sounded like on their set of instruments and uh, in high pitch in those days. Uh, all sorts of facets that, that give a very different performance practice to what might have been but um, we do have a fascinating insight and that's where something like the Regal Zonophone website is really interesting in terms of being able to compare and contrast recordings. That's, that's probably something that could work for another time um, in the sense that there's, uh, there's a whole heap of work uh, in in regard to that that uh, would take uh, quite a few moments to to work through of itself but that's something that people can go and have a look at and just uh, find out for themselves and how different some of those recordings are stylistically um, I've spoken about this before stylistically how we approach the sense of performance practice because if we're not careful we tend to play and uh, and conductors tend to conduct things the way they've heard them before instead of saying what does the score tell me about the way this works what do I do here where does some of the performance practice come from that's not to say that it's not correct but sometimes there's more than one way of looking at things and interpreting the score and, and for the old wells that's, uh, that would be another fascinating exercise as well. Thank you Howard for your time preparing that analysis, a really insightful look into a, such a well established piece now in our repertoire. Now from the old wells to a place where there are no wells to be found only a couple of palm trees for shade and the odd coconut for sustenance. I'm of course talking about the metaphorical, fully schooled Arid Island. Today's guest on that Arid Island and joining us for Arid Island album is Dale Caffell. Let's hear what he has to say. Thank you ever so much for joining us for this episode's Arid Island Albums. It's great to have you here. Are you keeping well? Yes, doing very well, thank you. Excellent stuff. So I'd just like to get to know you a little bit first of all. So could you tell everyone that's listening uh, a little bit about what your day job entails? Sure. So my day job is a software engineer. So essentially it means computer things is generally what I tell people. But uh, yeah, it's about writing code and writing programs. Primarily, it's website development for me, and, uh, and I've been doing that for a long time, 14 years, I think, so far. Fantastic. And uh, you're a Salvationist at the Romford Corps, is that right? That is correct, yes. Yes, my parents are officers, but uh, I, I, was, I, I kind of cheated the system a bit because we moved to Romford when I was about five, and they had about three or four different appointments which didn't require us to move, and by that time I was 18 and could stay there, so <laughs> I haven't really had the officer's good experience. <laughs> I'm sure that many listeners would be aware of the Salvation Army Music Index, and you are the brains behind that. Uh, did you come up with the idea yourself? Uh, yes, I suppose so. Um, uh, it was really just uh, born out of my own desire, I suppose. Um, it, it was. I, I joined the team of Bandmasters at Romford. We have a team there. Um, I, I joined that in, in 2015. I was fairly... Um, you know, young-ish at the time, and uh, and and I didn't 
know where to find the pieces that I wanted to, to play with the band. You know, I knew a lot of titles in my head that I'd heard of or maybe had previously played, but just didn't know where to find them. We had a, a great library at Rockford full of, full of music and just uh, didn't know which drawer to open. And so, um, you know, there were some solutions out there already. Um, Bill Hines had made a CD in the past, and, and uh, one that I used a lot was Winnie Erzberger's Excel sheet. Um, but, uh, but for me, you know, as I've said, I'm an engineer, and, and I wanted to, um, to have a go at building something for myself um, to make it a, a website, which would be a bit more accessible for me, handy when I'm just on the train on the way to band practice and I'm trying to look up the numbers. And so, yeah, it just really started off as a, as a personal project for me. It wasn't necessarily intended to grow into what it was today, but um, here we are. Fantastic. And it is a great resource and really, really well done. Is it just you that's behind it? It was a whole team of people working behind the scenes. I mean, of course, no one can do anything without lots of help, right? So, you know, um, it, it, it's it primarily being me and the, the most notable person to mention is my brother, Rowan, who sort of helps me with just more the business side of things, just... Um, talking to people and getting meetings and stuff like that. But uh, in terms of in terms of programming and the data collection and, and all that stuff, it, it, it is primarily myself, just with lots and lots of support from lots and lots of people. Excellent. And anyone that's used a resource over the last few years has seen it grow and adapt. Uh, have you got any more plans to further enhance it in the future? I mean, so many ideas, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, lots of people write in with ideas, which is fantastic. Um, you know, we've, we've built made lots of different features. You know, we were able to start sending sheet music, which is a huge one. And the Hall of Fame, I think, has been quite popular. So um, at the moment, no, nothing imminent coming, but there are lots of ideas and just more things to do. So I guess just keep watching and, and, and see, what, uh, see what happens. And do, of course, let, please do let me know if you have great ideas for, for what we can do, because I'm, I'm always open to that. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, wish you all the best with your ongoing work with that in the future. So that brings us on to the all-important question. If you were left abandoned on an arid island and could take with you only one album, what would it be and why? Oh, well, I, I have had a few favourite albums over the years. Um, it's, it's changed a few times, but as soon as this question came up, you know, the arid island album, it was obvious which one I was going to pick. Fire in the Blood by the International Staff Band has, has been my favourite album ever since it came out. Um, I don't actually tend to buy a lot of brass albums, um, but, uh, but I heard Fire in the Blood, the piece, at uh, ISB 120, and I just knew that I would have to have the album when it came out. Um, such, such a great piece. And uh, I'm so pleased that I did buy the album because there's so many tracks on there that are just really great. Um, you know, it opens with Temple 125, which is such an exciting, um, really uh, great opener to a CD, I, I think. Um, Life of Blaze is one that's, that's, that's really special to me because it's an arrangement of three or four, maybe even five worship songs, which are really, really special. Um, Soli Deo Gloria, for me, I think that's one of the most beautiful brass pieces I've ever heard. And lucky enough to play that one in Romford Band as well. And, and I so enjoyed playing that so much. It's got They Shall Come From The East. I mean, what can we say about that? A, a great tune to start with and, and what an amazing building arrangement. That, uh, it, it just builds up and, and it's so exciting by the end. Um, uh, I just love listening to that. And then of course, Fire in the Blood itself. Um, the reason I bought the album and probably my favourite brass piece of all time, it's, it's so exciting to listen to and it's full of great meaning and, and the tunes that are used within it. You know, it's one of my favourite songs to pieces, Sing for Joy by Richard Phillips and uh, I Love You Lord, which has got great memories for me from the singing company days and uh, Lord, that you know that we love you. But all these just combine so well and it's so well written. I just love listening to it. I listen to it all the time and, and I don't think I'll ever get bored of it. 
Brilliant stuff. Thank you ever so much and a great choice there, Dale. Thank you for giving up your time to join us today. Very welcome. Thanks, Dale. From the tropical heat of the arid island, we now venture to somewhere rumoured to be far toastier, the band mastermind hot seat. Occupying that seat today is Stephen Buller. So, Steve, welcome back to Fully Scored. It's now time to put you to the test in Band Mastermind. So, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as you can. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how nervous are you right now? Not at all. Oh, excellent. I like the confidence. <laughs> I'll ask you again at the end. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, Stephen Buller, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Bring it on. Your time starts now. How many works by Leslie Condon are published in the festival series? I wish it was a multiple choice. I'm going to say six. Close, but not quite, I'm afraid. Who wrote the epic work Koinonia, which was recently released on the new international staff band CD Powerhouse? Paul Sharman. Close, but not correct, I'm afraid. Who did Edward Gregson write Symphonic Rhapsody for? Hmm. Yeah, that's the euphonium solo. Who did he write it for? Not Derek Kane. Trevor Groom. Not quite, I'm afraid. Here's a true or false question. To the chief musician, festivity, salvation song, and the prayer meeting are all published on the same festival series set, true or false? True. Correct. Robert Redhead's Infinity was used for which contest in 2008? British Open. Uh, it was the English Nationals, so very close. Uh, what links Albert Drury's Norwich Citadel and Ray Ogg's Russo? The song. Uh, close. I'll come back to the answer in a bit. Which piece was the first to use the term tone poem? Eric Ball. Um, Berserkum. Very close. And final question. What was the original title of the march Keep Singing? No idea. Okay, that's your time up. I'll just go through the answers for the ones you didn't quite get. So there are 15 works by Leslie Condon published in the festival series. It was Martin Cordner who wrote Koinonia, released on the new ISB CD. Symphonic Rhapsody was written for Bram Gregson and the London Citadel Band. Of course. Um, as I said earlier, Infinity by Robert Redhead was used for the English Nationals. Mm. Um, and the link between Norwich Citadel by Albert Drury and Rayog's Russo was that they're both the only piece published by those composers. Oh, good. That's interesting. Go ahead. I'll give you half a point because you did get the correct composer for the first piece to use the term tone poem, but instead of Resurgum, it was Streams in the Desert. Oh, and I a, never used that. That's... <laughs> and a very, very tricky one to finish. What was the original title of the march? Keep singing. It was Openshaw Citadel. Oh. No so idea. that gives you a grand total, and it's not the bottom of the leaderboard, of one and a half. 1.5. 1.5, not a bad score at all for Band Mastermind, especially under the pressure. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, how nervous are you now you've done it? 
Oh, I'm I'm relaxing now. I was nervous before. <laughs> you get you get some great questions in there, Matt. So that was good, but good fun all the way. And thank you ever so much for your time once again. You're welcome. Well, folks, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this occasion. Don't forget, if you're listening to this on Wobplay, you can listen to a specially hand-curated playlist of music that relates to our guests or pieces that we've spoken about in this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can leave us a rating and a review, if you wish, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as I'm told that this helps to boost our podcast somehow so that more people might discover it. You can also hop on board with our social media presence by following us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter for the latest updates and sometimes even bonus footage. Now, just before you all disperse, a few thanks. Thank you first of all to our wonderful guests, Steve, Howard and Dale, for giving up your precious time to contribute to this podcast. We really are so appreciative. Thank you also to our producer, Simon Gash, who's edited together this and all our previous episodes, although rumour has it that he edited this one whilst out on a run. Thank you to the shadow-lurking band nerds for providing the band mastermind trivia. Thanks also go to you for tuning in to this episode. I hope to see you for the next one. Goodbye and God bless. Thank you.